after World War II, one of the most heartbreaking things for many of our American GIs overseas was seeing how many orphans were left on the streets. And I read a story this week about an American GI in the English countryside, jumped in his Jeep and was heading into town into headquarters in London. This was shortly after the war was over. Of course, there's rubble and there's all kinds of disaster. And as he's going by, he sees this bakery and he stops at the bakery and he notices one of these orphans has his face pressed up against the window, watching the baker knead the dough. He's making donuts. And this boy, you can just see he's salivating, wishing for a donut. And so this American GI, filled with compassion, uh, says, son, would you like a donut? I said, oh, yes, sir, I would so much so. It's okay. And so he goes in and he buys a dozen donuts and gets them put in a bag, brings them out, gives them to the little boy. and says, here you go, son. And as he's walking back to his Jeep, the little boy is tugging on his coat. And he says, mister, are you God? I think we are never more like God than when we are giving. Why? Because it's in God's very nature. One of the most famous passages in the entire Bible where Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus the Pharisee, he says, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son. He gave everything. He's a generous God. Therefore, we should reflect the character of our God. Compassion and generosity flow out of a heart that finds its strength in God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue our series that I'm calling Lessons from Three Kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. No, they're not the three wise men that went and saw Jesus. They're three different kings. But we're going to continue this morning seeing David. He's still running from Saul and hiding, and he's going to learn some very painful lessons, and we get to learn those lessons because he learned them himself. I'm going to pick up in 1 Samuel 27, if you want to turn there in your digital Bible or your actual paper Bible, because people still read those. David seems to be running away from his problems instead of trusting God. He takes things into his own hands. Does that sound at all familiar to you? You know, when David's external world begins falling apart, he models for us what it looks like to turn inward, turn to God and be strengthened by him. And the result is this compassion and this generosity that's kingdom value that gets poured out. And I believe that's what happens in our life too. So, Context for chapter 27 is that David has just come through being tempted to kill Saul, not once, but twice. And he's tempted to kill a foolish man named Nabal. And fortunately, God provides a way of escape through a very wise woman, Abigail, who actually ends up becoming his wife. So he's walked in this victory. He's on the mountaintop high. He's just come back from camp, if you will. He's doing great with Jesus. To those who stand, take heed lest he fall. And those are the moments where we really have to be careful because I believe that we're the most vulnerable and David was. Let's take a look. Chapter 27, verse one. But David thought to himself, self, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. 
Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David is beginning to slip down the slippery slope of doubt. And I don't mean the kind of doubt that you and I might struggle with. They're like, I don't know if I'm good at this or not. Doubting our own skills or abilities or talents. He's, he's not doubting himself. He's actually doubting whether God's going to come through for him. That is God actually going to bring to pass what God said, what he's promised? And what are the promises about David? Just a quick review. Well, we have Samuel the prophet, who's an absolute legend. He anoints David and says, you are going to be the next king of Israel in chapter 16. In chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, Abigail, who ends up becoming his wife, declares in her speech that he's going to be the king. Jonathan said in chapter 23 that he would be the king and Jonathan would be right next to him as his second in command. And even Saul, who's trying to kill him in chapter 24, we talked about it last week, declares that David's going to be king and triumphant. How many more prophetic words do you need? This guy's got promise on top of promise on top of promise, and yet he's doubting whether God's going to come through. He's beginning to try to help God out and rush things along. He's doubting all these words, and he's embracing the expectation of death and pain while not stepping into what God promised him to do. So in the old days, we had these things called cassette tapes. We played them in our car and other little devices. You would not know what those are. But cassette tapes play over and over and over. You can leave it in your car. It just keeps playing over and over and over. And in David's mind, the tapes are playing over and over and over. That I'm doomed to die to Saul's hand. It's fear that's prompting David to search for a better way instead of trusting God's timing. Instead of inquiring of the Lord, David decides he's going to protect himself. And it's interesting, our self-talk, what we say to ourselves in this passage, David thought to himself, well, isn't that a big deal? What, what, you can think whatever you want, right? But when we, what we say in our hearts has tremendous power to shape not only our thinking, but then our actions, our identity, and even our destiny. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, take every thought captive. Don't let your mind just wander away. That's where the enemy's going to tempt you to believe lies. You need to make sure that you rein it in. So David decides to make a deal with the enemy, literally, to escape his fears of moving forward. Let's take a look. Verse 2, let's see how well it goes. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of the king of Gath. And David and his men saddled in Gath with Achish. And each man had his family with him. And David had his two wives, Anoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel and the widow of Nabal. So David leaves his wilderness home in Israel and goes to enemy territory to find refuge. Of course, he's the commander-in-chief of all these discontented, indebted, burdened people that joined him in a cave. And he's been fathering and helping them. He's been uh, shaping them, probably helping them grow toward God and their spirituality. But he's been teaching them how to fight. And, and in the mean, meantime, they've, they've got families now. And they're bonded to him. And they're going to surely follow him. 
So it's 600 families that are going with David. It's interesting. When you choose a course of action that is not God's plan, those who trust you, who depend on you, those who look up to you and believe in you, they are going to follow you. And where do they go? Survey says, Gath. You might as well go to Mordor, people. The black gates are there waiting for you. Gath is the home of Goliath, just in case you didn't remember. Goliath was the giant that David slew, oh, a couple years ago. By the way, they're still singing the songs about him, that he killed tens of thousands of their people. That makes him really popular there, as you can imagine. Last time he he showed up in Gath, he was toting Goliath's huge sword on his hip. Well, that was really subtle. And then he's totally freaked out because he's afraid he's going to get killed by the king. And so he acts like a madman and he's got saliva running down his beard so he can escape. This time he won't be able to escape. He's got thousands of people that are depending on him. He's not going to just act mad and leave. Verse 4. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Saul's thinking, I have solved my David problem. He's fighting for our enemies now. My throne is safe. Who cares about the kingdom? Verse five. Then David said to Akish, if I've found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I might live there. And why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, verse six, Akish gave him Ziklag, which is a town, and it has belonged to the king of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. So David's saying, hey, why don't I not live in the same city as you? Because probably it's going to mean that the king's going to actually have to provide for him and it's going to cost the king money. But he also knows I don't want the king seeing my business that closely because what David's going to do is he's going to double cross the king. So he's given Ziklag to live in. And this was a place that originally uh, the Israelites were supposed to actually take control of. The tribe of Judah was given Ziklag. You see it in Joshua 15. And the author here reminds us, hey, by the way, once David gets this, the kings of Judah are always going to have it. We're going to take control of this thing. So David and his men are, what are they doing for a living? Well, they're, they're not making shoes. They're not making tents. They are raiding enemy territory and bringing back the loot. So they're going out and raiding the foes of Judah, the foes of Israel, and taking their stuff. And and he's telling the king of Gath, oh yeah, by the way, I'm fighting in the south of Judah. And he's thinking, oh, he's fighting his own people. This is a good deal. He's given me all this money. He's fighting my battles for me. This is great. This guy's great. I'm glad that he was a traitor and he came to me. So this double cross is successful and he's there for 16 months. It's so interesting. During this time, there's no Psalms that are recorded that we know of that David was writing. There are no recorded prayers. There is no inquiring of God through the priests. It seems to me that David has turned to his own wisdom, his own ability to make it through the season, and he's not going to press in to trust God. 
Has the last 16 months for you been similar? Have you turned to, I don't know, comfort foods, really fast internet, good streaming, entertainment, your own strategies to survive through the last 16 months? Because it's been isolating. Or have you, so have you felt like you've walked further away from God? Or do you feel like in this season you've walked into God's arms that are open? I have friends on both sides that answer on both ends. Skipping down to verse 12. Akish trusted David. Bad judge of character. And said to himself, he has been become so odious to his people. I love that word. The Israelites that he will be my servant forever. He is such a stink to them that he's going to keep giving me money. This is a good deal for me. So the king realizes if he's a traitor, he's going to have to stay serving me forever. Going to pay tribute. And David's got him duped. So this double crossing is what we find in chapter 29. And I'm just going to summarize it for you. That when the Philistines then are preparing to fight the Israelites, the king says, hey, David, you are the man's man. And you got these 600 dudes. Why don't you come? You can be the rear detachment. In other words, you're the ones that are going to personally defend me against the Israelites. David goes, okay, he's trapped. Now what is he going to do? Is he going to go fight his own people? He's going to be the next king. He loves Israel. He's a man without a country. And so he acquiesces. He even calls the king of Gath. You're my master and I'm your servant. And so he takes the men and he's getting ready for battle against Israel. And this is when the, king, the king's generals say, you know, we don't feel so good about this David guy. We think we've seen this movie before. We're going to get in the middle of battle and he's going to turn on us and he's going to kill us. So you need to send him home. So the king says, oh, okay, David, I really trust you, but those guys, they don't. So uh, just take your guys and go home. So they quietly, the morning of the battle, they shimmy out of town. They head back to Ziklag, to the back to the home base. And it's interesting, even in a season where I don't believe that David is really walking with God closely, God's still protecting David. He's still organizing all of these situations so these, these generals will not trust him and he'll get a pass and he won't be in the middle of a fight against his own people. And even if you, in the last 16 months, don't feel like you've walked with God and you've walked away from God and you're trying to figure out how to do life without him. God has still been working on your behalf. He's still been, been protecting and, and orchestrating things in your life. It doesn't mean everything's been perfect, but God is always working. If he's ever been working, he's always working. He's been working on your behalf. So then to 1 Samuel 30, verse 1. David and his men reached, reached Ziklag on the third day. So they're hiking for three days. Get this context. Make sure you understand it, right? So they've hiked for three days. They're a little tired. Now, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it. Verse 2. And they... And had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them. 
but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Bummer. You know, I didn't lose my house in the recent fires, but I know some of you did. I certainly have walked with many in that way, and the grief is so deep because everything is gone. But if you went through that, imagine that. Now add, your family is going to be taken away from you, and you're fearing that they're dead or they're slaves. The depth was, the depth of grief was overwhelming. And David became quickly the target of the grief and the anger that came after the grief. David, why did you leave the city unprotected? Why did you take everybody to go fight for your enemies? You did this to us. You're a bad leader. You deserve to pay. So while David and his men are literally conspiring with the enemy, the Amalekites come in, destroy the city, kidnap the families, probably going to make them slaves. So who are the Amalekites? Let me remind you, just in case you're new or you forgot. The Amalekites, they're our least favorite. They started with this guy named Amalek, who was the 13th son of Esau. And uh, they're a nomadic tribe in the south there, in the Negev, south of the Dead Sea. In all the languages that I looked at, they're all called the plunderers. Um, think Oakland Raiders and you got it, Dave. So it, it's, these, these are the people that are, that are going to go in and take everything from you and they're not going to apologize for it. They're the terrorists of their day. They would be the ISIS of their day. And definitely moral, morally bankrupt. They attack innocent people. And I don't know if you remember, but back in Exodus 17, when the people of God are coming into the promised land, Malachites come in and attack and cut off the women, the children, the elderly, the, those who, who really were the weakest and, and kill them off. And God says, uh, I'm gonna remove you from the earth because of this. Don't believe me? Deuteronomy 25. Moses says, remember, verse 17, what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Next verse. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Ooh, strong words. There's going to be justice. There's going to be judgment. Oh, by the way, Moses says, by the, you got to read this out loud to all of the people every single year. They've been hearing this every year. They're reminded, remember, there's going to be a time you're going to have to kill these guys. You're going to take them out. They're evil. Well, the time comes. Prophet Samuel comes to king, the first king of Israel, Saul, and says, it's time. You got to kill the Amalekites. Saul would have known this. He would have heard it all growing up every single year, the reading of the word, the reading of the Torah. And so you're commanded, go totally destroy them. Well, he doesn't obey. He doesn't fully take these people out and God rejects him as the king. And Samuel prophesies that the kingdom will be torn from him and given to one whose heart is after God, after God's own heart. So now David's dealing with these terrorists because Saul didn't do his job. This is the fruit of disobedience. When we are not obedient, the fruit lasts even longer than our own lifetime. 
oftentimes. Will David do better than Saul? Is he going to pass the test? Well, spoiler alert, we're not going to really have the threat of the Amalekites after this. David's going to do his job. He's going to take care of it. I mean, there's going to be a few remaining, but they're going to get wiped out by Hezekiah the king in 1 Chronicles 4. Verse 4. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Anoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, putting him to death. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And now we will pause because this is one of the best verses in the entire series. So this flood of lament blows up like a volcano of anger. And it congeals into a plan to kill David. And this is a critical moment for David, for his leadership for his character and his shaping. Will he crumble under the rejection of his men and the threat on his life? Then the loss of his family? Will he even live to tell about it? And as leaders, I think the takeaway question for us is when we're criticized as leaders, what do we do? How do we handle that? How do you handle that? That would be a good discussion question for picnic time over lunch. But catastrophe, it brings out the worst and the best. In this case, catastrophe brings out the worst in our men who follow David. They want to kill him. And just think all of the spiritual growth that David has been working with these guys. They've come so far. It just feels like it all went out the door. And here they are back to, we'll just kill you. For David, catastrophe brings out the best in him. Why? Because it pushes him toward God. This is one of the many reasons David is a man after God's own heart. So David's external world is collapsing. So he turns to his internal world to rebuild his primary identity in God. So this moment of disaster, freedom woke him up from 16 months of trying to do things on his own and literally serving the enemy. And now it's time to serve God again. When your world is collapsing, what do you do? You could be like Paul under the tamarisk tree and throw an epic pity party. They just don't even care about me. You could be paralyzed and overwhelmed. We saw that in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel with Saul. You could lash out and try to hurt someone else. Revenge, that's what David was tempted to do in the last couple chapters we studied. Or you can run from God. And partner with the enemy. And that's what David's doing in in these chapters. Or you can do what David finally determines to do. And that is to strengthen himself in the Lord. And as I was pondering this, I, I think I've learned this. That when things on the outside are breaking, the best way forward is to retreat into your inner world and get perspective and strength and guidance from God. 
There is so much noise in this world and yet God is inviting you into a quiet place with him where you can receive from him. Will you be reminded what your identity truly is because David is having a wake-up call to who he really is. But he's also making an effort to find his strength in God. How do I know that? Well, this, this little word, this little verb, and, and if you know this, uh, this verse in a, a different translation, you would know David strengthened himself in God. It's a reflexive, reflexive verb, meaning David was invested in it and actually pursuing after God, and God was providing all the strength to do so. It was a two-way street. It was a choosing in of David to receive from God. A choosing into a space where he would receive what he needed so that he could remember who he was and then move out. It's interesting that the author of 1 Samuel often leaves out how David is feeling. He's almost bigger than life in this book sometimes, even though we see his faults, right? We know he's not perfect. But we don't see a lot of windows into his feeling. I think the writer is trying to keep him uh, as the king that every other king will be measured against. However, we have this beautiful treasury of songs called the Psalms. And that's where we really get David's heart and we go, oh, that guy, he's super tender. He's super passionate. Man, everything he does, he goes 180%. War, love, worship, prayer, whatever it is, he goes for it. That's why, that's why I love David. He's passionate. So Psalm 28, I think it just captures God's, uh, well, David's heart in the words of this song. And, and I don't know the occasion for this writing, but I imagine this fits pretty well with what's going on and what he's feeling. So you're going to see two sides of David in this psalm. I'm just going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. And I want you to see the two sides. He's saying it's okay to be conflicted in your heart and worship God at the same time. Verse 1. I pray to you, O Lord, my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you're silent, I might as well give up and die. Does that sound familiar to our passage? Listen to my prayer for mercy as I cry out to you for help, as I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Verse 3. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, those who speak friendly words to their neighbors while planning evil in their hearts. Verse 4. Give them the punishment they so richly deserve. Measure it out with proportion to their wickedness. Pay them for, back for all their evil deeds. Give them a taste of what they have done to others. They care nothing for what the Lord has done or for what his hands have made. So he will tear them down and they will never be rebuilt. Whew. Get them, God. They're bad. They burned our city down. They took our, wife and our wives and our children and we are ticked. And then he shifts. Verse six. Praise to the Lord. He has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. I trust in him with all my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Verse eight. The Lord gives his people strength. He is a safe fortress for his anointed king. Oh yeah, that's right. That's who I am. I'm the anointed king. Save your people. Bless Israel, your special possession. Lead them like a shepherd and carry them in your arms forever. Whew. It's okay to be conflicted in the midst of worship. It's okay to come at God and go, God, this is how I'm feeling. 
But look at how he finishes. I think oftentimes when we express our heart to God, God begins to shift us into alignment with him. Desperate moments when you cry out to God. You've had those, I've had those, you will have them again. Crying out to God and ask you to, to save, guide, help, deliver, give me strength. I love this verse, it says, um, the Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all his heart, all my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. He's the one who helps you and he fills you with joy again, even though you've lost it. The Lord gives strength to his people. Boom, mic drop. So good. So this is the kind of God that wants to give you strength. How do you find strength in God? How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord like David? It's a great discussion question for lunch today. But a couple of thoughts. A couple of things that I've experienced even this week. So I do this silly thing. I break my leg. And as Chris and Rhonda are both underneath my arms carrying me to the car, I'm just like, Lord, thank you. I know you're going to help me. I just pray for your healing, your blessing. I just pray that you, and I just kind of like these little prayers. By the way, I like prayer really choppy, non-full sentences, not in King James English prayers. They're not beautiful. They don't have to be. God doesn't mind. He just is happy that I'm talking to him. You should try that. Choppy more often. That's how I get strengthened. God, I need your help. More, I need more strength. He's the one who strengthens us. That's what Psalm 28 says. Worship. It's interesting. The Bible says, sing to the Lord a new song. How often do we sing new songs? I don't know, but lately I've been looking for new songs. And so I've just been cruising around YouTube. And I know that some of you are much more sophisticated than that. So you're like, oh, there's a better way. But that's how I do it. And I find a new song and I just put it on repeat. I'm just like, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, that's so good. Yep, I'm just going to let that settle in my heart. Maybe it's time for you to find some new songs. That'll strengthen you in the Lord. Recalling what God's done. Taking a look at his word. And one of my favorite ways to do that is to read a totally different translation than I'm, I'm used to. And sometimes a paraphrase. I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson's The Message. You don't have to love it, but I do. You might consider that. Or leaning on a friend because we're not created to do this all alone. Have somebody pray for you. And oftentimes when they're praying for you, you hear words that they're praying that the Holy Spirit is authoring in their mouth. You're like, yeah, I need to remember that. I'm going to write that down. And so individually, it's important for us to connect to each other. I know a number of you actually reached out to me individually this week. It tells me that there's a need for this to be strengthened one-on-one together. But also corporately, there's moments where we need to draw together. I was praying just last night. I, I was looking at the weather to try to figure out what to wear today. And I, I saw that it was a red flag warning, that fire danger. I said, oh, Lord, help. No more fires in Northern California, Jesus. I just started praying. And then I thought, when something like a fire or we had the Orfield Dam crisis or other things happen, what should we do? And I realized, what you should do is come to the church. You should just come straight here. Don't get online and try to figure out if we're here or not. Don't call. Because if there's a real crisis going on, just come. Just show up. Maybe to serve. Probably to pray. 
We need to be a place where we go, man, when stuff goes wrong, that's where you go. We find our strength in God by being together. So that's just a little commercial for next time there's a disaster and there will be a disaster in the world. Just come, just come to the church. We'll be here. Well, strengthening ourselves in the Lord. There's been books written about it, um, but it's a powerful concept of how we reconnect with God, how we reorient our identity to be in sons and daughters, loved in sons and daughters, overcomers, not victims, ones who are able to move forward. So then what happens? Verse seven. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, should I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them. He answered, you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David does the very best thing he could do. He inquires of the Lord. Nowadays, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. You are empowered and you can just go straight to God. You don't have to pray through a saint. You don't have to, to talk to a priest or a pastor. Go straight to God. It's always good to pray with somebody, but you don't even have to do that. But in that day, it seems really weird to us that they had the Urim and the Thummim, these two little rocks that were inside the, the priest's cool robe chest piece and they would pull they would be pulled out and they would either glow or or indicate somehow God's will don't understand it don't have to because I got the Holy Spirit now but that's what you would do and so that's what David did he's inquiring of the Lord do you inquire of the Lord how do you do that I don't know well do you ask questions of God that might seem intimidating to you because like, well, but I don't hear his voice audibly so I shouldn't ask him questions because that's like a one-way weird thing and I'll, t- people think I'm crazy No, but God actually does speak to you in a number of different ways. And oftentimes, if you ask him a question, then you begin looking for the answer because he will reveal it to you. He may not speak audibly in your ear, although that does happen every once in a while and it's crazy and wonderful. But oftentimes it's a subtle thought that comes into your mind. And you go, oh, I wonder if that's the answer. Or the prayer of a friend who's praying for you. And you go, oh, huh something about that. Or you're reading in the Bible and then all of a sudden you get stuck on a verse. You're like, I don't know why this verse keeps jumping off the page to me. The Holy Spirit's like, I'm underlining and highlighting and making sure it's in the 24 point type. Or circumstances. Or a song on the radio. Or a quote that someone gives you. God speaks in a lot of different ways. But if you're not asking the questions, how can you expect to get the answers? Well, I gotta land this plane. Verse nine. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezor ravine where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. They had just gone 15 miles to the Bezor ravine. But David and the 400 men continued on pursuit. You put your feet in the creek. You hold the stuff. We're going ahead. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. And they gave him water to drink and food to eat. Part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. And he ate and he was revived. For he had not had eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. This looks like a total distraction. We got to keep hurrying. They might have killed our families if we don't get on it. It would be easy to let this guy die. He's not even one of their people. But what seems to be an interruption is actually a beautiful act and opportunity for compassion and set up by God. 
How many times are we so focused on our schedule, our thing, our stuff, that we blow right by compassion, caring, generosity to others because we're too in a hurry? Not all interruptions are from the enemy or taking us off our game. Sometimes we are divinely interrupted and we must be sensitive. Verse 13, David asked him, to whom you do you belong and where do you come from? And he said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. Dun, dun, dun. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. Verse 14, we raided the Negev of the Carathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag. Oh, he might not be our friend now. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? And he answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. David's like, done and done. Verse 16, he led David down and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. These guys have been busy. Verse 17, David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. Ooh, talk about long days. And none of them got away, uh, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. If you figure out the meaning of that, please let me know, because I don't know what that's about. Verse 18, the point is this. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. How much? Everything, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young and old, boy and girl, plunder or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. Verse 20, he took all the flocks and the herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, this is David's plunder. David goes from public enemy number one to the hero that gets all the credit. And you would think that might be the end of the story. But while I would give David credit for seeking God and persevering, God was the one who was clearly recovering, making sure they recovered all that they had lost plus more. And as I thought about this, I thought when we ascribed, when we ascribe to men credit for what God has done or what belongs to God, the credit that belongs to God, greed and pride always rise up. And watch how this plays out. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor ravine. And they came out to meet David and the people with him as David and his men approached, he greeted them. Bezor, by the way, I think it was named after this event. It means good news. Why? Because they are getting the best news ever that their families are still alive. Verse 22. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we've recovered. However, each man can take their wife and children and go. Brother, these men are forgetting the true source of wealth. That's why they're ascribing to David the credit. And where do all things come from? Well, we know from the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. So David's a good leader, and he sets the record straight. Verse 23, David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. This is God's doing. Let's not give anybody else credit. Verse 24, who will listen to what you say? 
The share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And then David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this, to now. David's walking in so much grace. He's had a change of heart. He's remembered who he is. He has an identity reset. He makes a rule that says, nope, the, the land of Israel, the people of Israel, we are always going to be courageous in our generosity because God's the provider who meets our needs. Are you courageous in your generosity? As we walked through the campfire, I was, I got a phone call from all sorts of people from all over the nation. And one of the men who called just to pray with me was from Virginia, never met the guy before. And he said, Andrew, I just want to tell you one thing. I said, what's that? Because I'm all ears because I've never been through this before. He said, whatever you do, be courageous in your generosity. I wrote it down. And it became a mantra for us. And not just for crisis, but for neighborhood church as a whole. That we would be very courageous in our generosity. If you struggle to be generous in your, if you struggle to be generous, then it might be because you're not rightly discerning that God is the source of all things, not others. Struggle with generosity is a faith issue because you're not believing that God's going to backfill as you give. Well, let's land the plane. Verse 26. When David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David strengthens himself in the Lord, and there's incredible compassion and generosity. We see it with the Egyptian. We see it with his own, with his own men, these 200 men that are left behind. And now we see it with the entire nation as the next verse actually says, again, he sent it to this, and he sent it to this place, and he sent it to this place. He's being courageous in his generosity. He's not holding back, hoping he's not going to have enough. He's not operating with a spirit of lack, but he's moving out with faith. So this morning, do you feel like David? Do you feel like a man without a country spiritually? That maybe the last 16 months has been really hard, and maybe today's the day for you to come back and say, I'm back with you, God because he's so ready to receive you. Has the last season confused you in your identity and how you stand with God? Have the losses of the past season meant that others have mistrusted you, like David, who found himself the enemy to his men? And I guess, I just want to ask you, are you afraid to show true compassion or generosity maybe because you need to strengthen yourself in the Lord and then that's your next step I read this story as I close um, about swallows and this mama swallow was sitting on a twig with her three babies and it was time for those babies to learn how to fly so she nudges the first off of the twig and the swallow starts going down toward the ground and then the wings start to flap and away she goes. The second, the same thing happens. The third has a little bit of an attitude. The third swallow is holding on for dear life and the mom is trying to push that swallow off 
And eventually, it kind of gets off-centered, and now all of a sudden, the swallow is holding on with talons, and it's kind of like facing down toward the ground, and the mama is pecking his feet to try to get him to let go. Why? Because the mom knows what the young chick doesn't, that you will fly, and there's no danger in letting go. You're actually designed to fly. And birds have feet, and they can walk, and they have talons to hold on to things, but flying is their characteristic. It's what they're made for. It's living life at their best, gracefully and beautifully. And I think in so many ways, giving is what we do best. It's the era that we were born into. It's the action that we were designed for before we were born It's what life to the fullest looks like. It's giving your life away. If you want the life of God, you've got to give away what you have. Oftentimes people hang on like that little bird on in selfishness or fear that if I let go, then, well, I'm going to crash and I won't be provided for. I think a lot of people don't think they can live generously because they've never tried. And maybe you're like the little bird that's holding onto the stick right now. And you just need a little bit of a nudge to find out that when you finally do let go, your wings will begin to move and you will fly. You were created to live generously. And by giving generously and living this way, you will experience life to the fullest. And yet it all starts with understanding who you are, your identity, realigning and strengthening yourself in the Lord. And the byproducts are compassion and generosity. So let's stand. I'll sit. You stand. And I just want to pray for you that the Lord will bless us in this and make us a generous people. So Lord, thank you for your compassion on us, Jesus. You are the most compassionate. You are the most generous. So help us to walk in this in new ways. Give us eyes to see uh, where we can lean in. Lord, help us to let go of the things that we hold on to and think that somehow they give us security. Give us real life to the fullest as we learn how to be generous in new ways. Thank you for your goodness over the life of our church. I bless this place in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're watching on the stream, thanks so much for joining us. We are so glad that you connected. Make sure that you send us your prayer requests via email or the digital prayer card. And if you're in the house, make sure that you clean up your trash. We've got prayer in the chapel on your way out. We'll see you next week.